Hello, this is Dr. Jessica Castle, Associate Professor at Oregon Health and Science University and Associate Editor of Diabetes Technology and Therapeutics. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast titled Clinical Outcomes and Best Practices for CGM Youth in Youth Up to Early Adulthood. In this podcast, our expert faculty, Drs. Daniel DeSalvo and Lori LaFell, will discuss the youth and benefits of real-time CGM in young children, adolescents, and young adults. Topics discussed will include clinical study outcomes, ways to increase utilization in these age ranges, and benefits of real-time CGM. This podcast was sponsored by Dexcom. Joining us today is Dr. Daniel DeSalvo, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Children's Hospital, and Dr. Lori LaFell, Chief of the Pediatric Adolescent and Young Adult Section and Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Joslin Diabetes Center. Thank you, Drs. DeSalvo and LaFell, for joining us today. Dr. LaFell, can you tell me a little bit about the challenge of glycemic control in adolescents and young adults living with type 1 diabetes? As many people know, with childhood growth and development, you get into adolescence, you're challenged with the pubertal growth and development and the attending insulin resistance that leads to glycemic control and achieving glycemic targets, both with respect to A1C and glucose time and range is extraordinarily challenging for the pediatric population. It begins in the very young children. It's very challenging because parents have extraordinary fear of hypoglycemia and um, many are often fearful of whether very young children will eat. So they're worried about giving insulin in a timely manner. Then you're challenged with increasing insulin doses and rising A1C. Then you're challenged with later adolescence and early adulthood when you have so many competing demands, social, emotional, academic, work-related separation from family that we see actually the highest A1C in the later teenage years uh, between the ages of 17 and 19. And it continues to remain high until sort of the mid-20s when it does uh, begin to approach the adult years. So we're faced throughout the entire period of childhood through adolescence and early adulthood with rising A1C so that we barely have a quarter of people achieving glycemic targets. It's the overwhelming majority who have elevated A1Cs and are unable to achieve a glucose time in range of greater than 70% between the values of 70 and 180. And Dr. Zosalvo, what has your experience been in trying to help manage children and adolescents living with type 1 diabetes? So there's certainly a lot of challenges for, for both young children and for the adolescents and young adults. As Dr. LaFell was mentioning, in the case of young children, they have unpredictable behaviors and eating patterns. They're unable to articulate their symptoms of hypo and hyperglycemia. They also have frequent intercurrent illnesses. And the other issue, of course, is that they're completely dependent on their parents and other adult caregivers for all of their diabetes management. And this can lead to a substantial emotional burden on their caregivers, as well as the really pronounced fear of nocturnal hypoglycemia, especially that Dr. LaFell mentioned. The other thing that I'd add is that there's the recent direct net study data that indicates a slowdown of gray and white matter growth for young children with persistently high blood sugars or wide glycemic variability. And so it really is time to change the paradigm for these young children away from just erring on the side of high blood sugars and avoiding lows to really optimizing time and range to improve clinical outcomes. For the adolescents and young adults, it's a different set of factors that can really make it challenging to optimize glycemic control. There's the shifting independence in diabetes management away from the parents and caregivers towards the person with diabetes. This is a time when there's a lot of competing priorities with academics and extracurricular activities, and diabetes isn't always at the forefront. 
And of course, for the young adult who's moving away from home with a focus on school or work, where diabetes may be less of a priority, it makes optimizing glycemic control really a challenge. And the idea behind the Sense and City studies were that CGM, real-time CGM in this case, could represent that paradigm shift away from just avoiding hypoglycemia to really optimizing time and range, leading to both improved clinical outcomes and less burden with diabetes management as well. And my clinical experience has really, in many cases, reflected the T1D exchange registry data that Dr. LaFell was highlighting, where we see a mean A1C well above 7.5% in the pediatric age range, peaking above 9% in that 17 to 19 year. And of course, the ADA standards of care updated this year with a glycemic target now less than 7% for the pediatric age. So certainly the stakes are high to try to improve clinical outcomes. You mentioned the Sense and City trials. So let's talk in more detail about those. Dr. LaFell, can you tell us a little bit about the design of the city trial? Since CGM has been around for now, the turn of the 21st century, it was recognized that um, CGM could make a difference in adults with diabetes because the adults with diabetes wore the CGM devices and usage of the CGM translated to improvements in glycemic control. Wound up in the pediatric population, in particular, in the JDRF CGM study now published over a decade ago, the age group of 15 to 24-year-olds, only one-third, 30% of that sample in the JDRF CGM study wore the CGM device consistently for six months or more for the six-month duration of the trial. Again, this study was published in around 2008, and it highlighted a period when CGM was an emerging technology. It was quite useful, but it didn't have the benefits that it has today, and particularly it didn't have the benefits of non-adjunctive use. In other words, you could use your CGM to manage your diabetes, to dose insulin, to determine if you needed to be eating, to manage your exercise, that it was a replacement for blood glucose monitoring. So from the JDR CGM study, we knew that only 30% of adolescents and young adults were able to wear CGM six or more days per week. And it was that consistent usage, which translates into the benefit in terms of glycemic outcomes and also benefits in terms of patient reported outcomes. Well, now we're in a new era. We have devices that have the accuracy that mirror that blood glucose meters. We have devices that take away some of the burden of self-care. Previously, every new advance we had demanded the person with diabetes or the family members helping that person to do more to achieve glycemic targets. You had to go from twice daily injections to intensive insulin therapy. You had to go to insulin pump therapy, changing infusion sites, filling reservoirs, checking more and more glucoses per day. And suddenly we had a technology that emerged that took away some of the work and burden of diabetes. So here we thought it was the time to focus on that most challenging age group, the age group that has the highest A1C, those 14 to up to 25-year-olds, and see if we could, in a randomized controlled trial, compare the newer CGM devices with standard blood glucose monitoring and see if, indeed, we could affect an impact on glycemic control. Our goal was that we wanted to see, number one, would teenagers be willing to do the study? Number two, would they be willing to wear the CGM? And number three, would we be able to affect a change in the outcome in glycemic control with the CGM use? And hence, the study study was born. What's so important about the way the study was designed, it crossed 14 sites in the United States. So not only was it done in a rigorous RCT manner, but it has generalizability because it crossed multiple states, multiple payers, insurers, 
public and private, and represented a large racial and ethnic minority population as well. And among these 14 sites, 153 teens ages 14 to under 25 were recruited, and over 90% were followed for the entire six months. And Daniel, I'll let you talk about the outcomes. Yeah, so for this cohort of pretty late adopters to diabetes technology, the primary outcome was the change in A1C from baseline to the six-month time of the study. And for the patients randomized to CGM, their baseline A1C was 8.9%, and at six months, it was reduced down to 8.5%. Whereas for those who continued on their blood glucose meter, their baseline A1C was also 8.9%, but there was no change in A1C at six months. It remained 8.9%. So this represents an adjusted between-group treatment difference of 0.4%, favoring those who were on CGM. Additionally, some of the secondary outcomes around glycemic metrics, time in range and time below range, time above range, also improved for the patients randomized to CGM compared to their blood glucose meter. So we saw the time and range adjusted treatment difference of a net increase of 7% for those on CGM compared to blood glucose meter. That represents almost two hours per day. And also the time below range was decreased by 0.7%, which is about 10 minutes. So they achieved what I call the trifecta in diabetes management, which is a lower average A1C with more time and range and less hypoglycemia. And one other thing I'd like to add is that there was a higher percentage of participants randomized to CGM who had their A1C reduced by at least 0.5%. It was 44% of participants in the CGM arm versus only 21% in the BGM arm, BGM for blood glucose meter. And then also a higher percentage of those who had their A1C reduced by at least 1%, 25% or one in four CGM users had their A1C reduced by 1% from baseline to six-month follow-up compared to just 6% in the blood glucose meter arm. So across all glycemic metrics, A1C and the CGM metrics, we saw improvements for the participants randomized to CGM versus blood glucose meter. Dr. LaFell, was remote monitoring used in this study? It was available. Adolescents and young adults could use SHARE, and that actually was not a deterrent. I can tell you that Dr. DeSalva just did a great job presenting the primary outcome from the city trial published in JAMA just this summer, 2020. But there will be additional information on a follow-up study where the BGM control group was given a CGM device, and they were offered the opportunity to turn off SHARE. And we have to really dive a little bit further into these results. But I can tell you that was not a deterrent. It wasn't what one previously expected, that the adolescents and young adults didn't want anybody to be involved. Now, obviously, this is a generality about the sample. Certainly, individuals may want to avoid sharing. But it was actually preferred by many to continue to use share. So it was a great question. If I can highlight again, not only was this study positive in terms of improving glycemia from all the outcomes that Daniel mentioned, the primary outcome of A1C as well as the other metrics, but this again is generalizable because 40% of this sample had public insurance and over a third of them were from a racial and ethnic minority groups. So when we're trying to deal with these issues of health disparity, we know we can offer these advanced diabetes technologies across the entire population of young people with type 1 diabetes and it can make a difference. I'd like to add a little bit about the use of remote monitoring in this study. So about 55% of the city participants were using the remote monitoring features at 12 months. And while there are benefits to technologies, there can also be some drawbacks. So one of the main benefits was the safety feature. 
So for them to have a loved one or a partner or a roommate or someone remotely monitoring when they had especially significant hypoglycemia was a real help and safety. A drawback could be that sometimes the young adults or the adolescents might feel like their loved ones are hovering. Even though it's coming from a place of care and, and love, sometimes they could feel like they were hovering. So one of the things that from a clinical standpoint we've learned to do is really discuss the use of Dexcom share and follow. And the city study Dexcom G5 was used during the first six months of the study. And then the Dexcom G6 system was used for the second six months. These are, of course, young people who more or less live on their cell phones. So the vast majority of users were using the Dexcom mobile apps. And one of the features of Dexcom Share Follow is that for the followers, there's the option to have the trend graph turned off or on. And then there's also the option for the low and high notifications to receive those notifications, not just on threshold, but also on duration. As an example, if we have a 15-year-old who has a shifting independence with their diabetes self-management and their parents are still wanting to follow just for the safety feature, there might be some negotiation where we decide that the parents turn the trend graph off for a little while. And maybe for their low notification, instead of getting a low notification at 80, we buffer it down a little bit to 70 or maybe even 70 for 30 minutes to allow the person with diabetes to have a chance to respond. It's going to vary from person to person, and obviously it will be based on what their risk of hypoglycemia is, hypoglycemia awareness is. But with the shifting independence and diabetes management, there's an option with the Dexcom share follow features to really leverage those options for remote monitoring. And it's something that the person with diabetes can really be cared for in a way that's most helpful for them without feeling like people are always hovering, that you can really leverage the safety. Dr. LaFell, you mentioned in the JDRF study that the use of CGM in the adolescent and young adult group was low. How does that compare to the city study? Terrific question. Again, only 30% of the, it was the 15 to 24-year-olds in the JDRF CGM study used the CGM device for six or more days for the full six-month duration of the trial. Now, metrics were slightly different here because we based it upon five days or more. And in the city trial, we had two-thirds using the CGM on at least five days or more for the full six months duration of the trial. So what we're able to see is the improved performance of the CGM device translated to improved usage, which then mediated the improvement in glycemic control. So we have no doubt, I have no doubt in my mind that the extraordinary improvements in these CGM devices, the improved performance, the reduced need for self-care around finger stick glucose monitoring, reduced burden, the automated alerts and alarms that people may get, and they can do it in a vibration mode so you don't have to be bothered by sounds, has led to increased uptake, consistency of use, and durability of use. And that has been the recipe for seeing a shift in our glycemic curve with better A1Cs and increased glucose time and range, and it is just really a bell ringer. And that leads us probably to look at another age group. Before we move on, I just had one question. So we've talked about the study results. How does this compare to what you've seen in clinical practice? Do you recommend CGM for all of your adolescents and young adults? It's not a doubt in my mind that from day one of diagnosis, CGM is part of the diabetes treatment program. And in fact, during this pandemic, when we're looking at trying to maintain outpatient care and even virtual care of nuanced patients, CGM initiation on day one is our goal. And we're able to do that in the subset 
of patients who have pharmacy benefit. For those who have the benefit under durable medical equipment, we have been able to get CGM within the first 10 days. But our goal is it should be on day one for everyone. Yeah, I agree. We in Texas, previously we had some disparities in access to CGM technology because Texas Medicaid did not start covering CGM until about three months ago. And this was a huge win for the children and youth of Texas when finally, with a lot of advocacy and lobbying efforts, it finally was covered. And so now more than 80% of our patients are starting on CGM within three months of diagnosis. And we have a similar experience in that for those who are able to obtain CGM through pharmacy benefits, they're oftentimes starting the first or second day after diagnosis. And for those who still have it covered via DME, it's usually within a couple of weeks. I agree with what Dr. LaFell said. These really substantial improvements in CGM technology, not just the improved accuracy and convenience, but the other features like the mobile app data display, the remote monitoring, and then the big one for this age range is the non-adjunctive approval for dosing insulin. And the city study, 97% of participants were dosing insulin with CGM without confirming finger stick blood glucose values. And so this is an age where checking a finger stick blood glucose is maybe less of a priority or harder to stay on top of. So to be able to have the CGM data on their mobile phone where they can just swipe right, view their CGM glucose values, and then dose according to that was, I think, a major factor in allowing them to optimize their glycemic control. And in my clinic, I certainly see that my patients who are able to start on CGM are able to improve their glucose control, both in terms of lower A1C and less hypoglycemia, but also it's the quality of life piece, the ability to be able to not have to check their blood sugars as often, less burden in diabetes management while also getting those clinical outcomes, I think is the real game changer there. Excellent. I would say as an adult endocrinologist, I see what a life-changing decision it can be to start on CGM for adults living with type 1. And it seems like even more so potentially for adolescents and young adults. So let's move on, as Dr. LaFell mentioned, to talk about children living with type 1 diabetes. Dr. LaFell, can you tell us a little bit about the design of the SENSE trial? So let's get to the other end of the pediatric spectrum, and that is the very young children, ages 2 to under age 8. If I could hearken quickly back to that JDRF CGM trial, that was essentially three trials in one. So it was ages 8 to 14, 15 to 24, and then 25 and older. But it didn't have any patients who were under age 8. So lots of the earlier trials were direct net, which were using older technology. And here it was time with the better performing CGM devices to see how would CGM perform in terms of optimizing glycemic outcomes in this very vulnerable population. Here we had 143 children from 14 U.S. sites. Again, quite a diverse population. Again, I want to mention how the population is very much akin to the general clinic. 32% were racial and ethnic minority participants, and 38 had non-private health insurance, so some kind of public health insurance. So again, a very not the Uber users of technology, so to speak. So this study involved the 14 sites. Duration of diabetes was only three months or longer, and they had to be CGM naive or could not have been using CGM in the last month or so. A1C at entry was 7 to 10%. Now, the SEND study, as opposed to the city RCT, had a primary outcome of glucose time and range of 70 to 180. As we discussed previously, the primary outcome in city was A1C. Now, what we did do in the design of the SENSE study was got a little bit of background qualitative data to better understand the needs of the families of very young children with type 1 diabetes and complement the clinical expertise that the investigative team had. 
And now it's to really to try to understand the burdens and the challenges and the fears that these parents have in caring for the diabetes in the young children. And with that in mind, we were able to design a family-based behavioral intervention to understand what could be perceived as barriers for CGM use, how hard it might be to insert a device in a very young child who may be running away and needs to be held down, how extra taping to keep the device on could be a challenge for young children how parents would react to 288 glucose readings a day when they're overwhelmed with just seeing if their young child may eat breakfast in a timely manner. So what we did is with a multidisciplinary group, we conceived this family behavioral intervention that particularly addressed these types of psychosocial barriers that are facing the very young children, what Dr. DeSalvo mentioned at the beginning of this discussion. So we had three groups. We had standard CGM use with an extraordinarily potent CGM education curriculum. Then we had, again, CGM education, but that was supplemented with its family behavioral intervention. And then we had a blood glucose monitoring standard care group. And again, this was a six-month RCT comparing these three groups. And the three groups were really being compared with CGM with or without the behavioral intervention against blood glucose monitoring as a primary outcome. Could the use of CGM compared to the BGM group improve glucose time and range? And then would there be any additional benefiting from CGM with this family behavioral intervention? Again, implemented across 14 sites with extraordinary retention. Over 90% of the participants finished the six-month trial. Can you go over the results that were seen with the SENSE trial? Sure. So as Dr. LaFell mentioned, this is a very heterogeneous cohort, again, of late technology adopters from low socioeconomic status backgrounds, and there was a high percentage of racial ethnic minority populations. So really a major, I think, benefit of the study is that we were able to provide CGM to some participants who may not otherwise have had it. And the case of the SENSE study, the primary outcome was time and range from baseline to six months. And the goal for improving time and range for CGM users compared to those who need on blood glucose meter was not achieved, but hypoglycemia was markedly reduced and profound hyperglycemia, that is, sensory glucose values above 300 milligrams per deciliter was also reduced. And furthermore, in an exploratory post-hoc analysis, the CGM group that received the family behavioral intervention did show an improvement in time and range, that's the percent of values between 70 to 180 milligrams per deciliter, compared to the BGM group, but also compared to the standard CGM group. When you look at the time and range from 19 weeks to 26 weeks, which was the time point at which all of the FBI or family behavioral intervention content had been delivered, and the time and range improvement was 7% for the CGM plus family behavioral intervention group compared to BGM group. That represents one hour and 40 minutes per day. So again, when the entire family behavioral intervention, five separate modules were delivered from that point until the 26-week follow-up, there was an improvement in almost two hours per day of time and range. Again, that's with less hypoglycemia, both in terms of the percentage of glucose values below 70, as well as the level two hypoglycemia, that's the percentage of glucose values below 54. And that was seen for both the CGM plus family behavioral intervention group, as well as the standard CGM group compared to the blood glucose meter group. And again, while one might say there wasn't a significant p-value increasing the glucose time and range with CGM, we have to just highlight these extraordinary outcomes with this SENSE study. Because CGM compared to BGM in these children ages 2 to under 6, there was less hypoglycemia, both less than 70, less than 54, that time was reduced. 
there was less severe clinical hypoglycemic events that reached significance, which was extraordinary. There was less time spent in hypoglycemia. There was reduced glucose variability. And at the same time, the CGM group that received the family behavioral support had reduced parental burden, reduced fear of hypoglycemia, and reported improved satisfaction with diabetes technologies. Furthermore, more than 90% of the children were still using CGM at the end of the six-month trial, which is extraordinary because we were fearful that young kids would just stop using the trial because of the behavioral issues, potentially. And caregiver trust, in fact, increased over time. So at the beginning, often some parents were still checking finger sticks before insulin dosing. But by the end of the trial, over 90% of the parents were dosing insulin based upon the CGM value and no longer needing to check a finger stick to dose insulin. So really extraordinary outcomes with these CGM devices with improved performance, really in the very vulnerable young, as well as in the adolescent and emerging adult group. Dr. DeSalvo, can you talk a little bit about the extension phase and the results from the SMBG group that crossed over to the CGM group? Sure. So the extension phase was the period from the six-month primary endpoint until one year out from the study start. In the case of the group that started on blood glucose meter and then crossed over to CGM, they did also receive a modified family behavioral intervention starting at that 26-week time point. And there was a trend towards improving time and range from 26 to 52 weeks from 38 to 40%. But once again, this was not statistically significant. However, again, there was a reduction in hypoglycemia for those participants who did crossover from BGM to CGM, where they went from having, I believe it was around 5% of their glucose values below 70 when they were on blood glucose meter down to less than 3% of glucose values below 70 at 12 months. Additionally, they saw less time spent in level two hypoglycemia, that is the percentage of glucose values below 54 milligrams per deciliter, did not achieve that primary endpoint of increasing time and range after crossover, but did see a reduction in hypoglycemia. And once again, also less glucose values below 300 milligrams per deciliter which could have important outcomes in terms of optimizing gray and white matter growth and neurocognitive development. So given these known benefits of CGM in young children, how do you approach this in clinical practice? Do you recommend it to all of your young children living with type 1? Yeah, I was going to say, so once again, I believe CGM to be standard of care, particularly for this vulnerable population who has so many challenges to glucose control, including the inability to articulate the symptoms of hypo and hyperglycemia, also that really important piece of caregiver burden where they are completely responsible for the young child's diabetes management to have the real-time CGM glucose values as well as the notifications for low and high alerts both for the user as well as the follower in the case of remote monitoring and once again it lead to improved clinical outcomes but also the really important behavioral and psychosocial outcomes for the child but also for the caregivers. I certainly believe that initiating CGM at the point of diagnosis or soon thereafter is ideal for diabetes management. And I can echo Dr. DeSalvo that it's standard of care to give a prescription and implement as soon as possible CGM in the very young. I think this notion of sharing the data allows the chance to have a little bit of normalization of childhood for the very young with diabetes. Grandparents can feel at ease when they're watching the grandchildren now because they can get the data, but so can the parents get the data. 
I think that the best thing that we hear is when the family starts CGM and they are so relieved to get the data and see the trend arrows and to be able to have the share function and be able to have the child go to preschool or to go to an activity and not have that same kind of worry that they had before. Or in the past, what often families of very young children would do is that they would over-treat to prevent a low when the young child was away from home because they were so fearful of lows. And now they have the data and they have the trend arrows so they can have a confidence which they've never had before. And what we hear is we take care of a lot of older adolescents, a lot of young adults who they themselves were diagnosed when they were ages two or three. And the parents all say universally, I wish I had this device when Johnny or Betty or Barbara was two years old because it would have been a life changer. I could have slept through a night. I never slept through a single night without getting up to check in overnight glucose, and I could have slept through the night. So it is really a bell ringer on this pediatric population. Another piece for these young children is that for the caregivers, it can be really exhausting and overwhelming to have this 24-7, 365 responsibility for caring for their young child with diabetes. And one of the things that we heard during an initial qualitative first phase of the study that really helped to inform the family behavioral intervention was that they just feel stressed and overwhelmed and exhausted. And so one of the things that we aimed to do with the FBI was to educate secondary caregivers like babysitters or grandparents or others with managing diabetes based on CGM so that it could give the parents a break. So that's one of the things that's really key is that these parents can get a little bit of a break, a chance to catch their breath and get that much needed respite, which can re-energize them and caring for their child. That's another, I think, sometimes unappreciated aspect of CGM that can really help to empower the parents of young children with diabetes. Thank you, Drs. LaFell and DeSalvo, for that great discussion. I think the takeaway message here is that CGM is a very powerful technology that can be used across the lifespan, including young children, adolescents, and young adults. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much.